Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week the remaining challenges of getting refunds from travel providers who canceled trips during the pandemic but never gave travelers their money back. So what can you do? We'll talk about one case in Boston with the head of consumer advocacy for the Massachusetts State Attorney General, William O'Hearn. And then, if you haven't already noticed, it's the summer of Armageddon as America's Airlines, airports, and travel infrastructure seems to be melting down. Gary Leff, the author of ViewFromTheWing.com, has a few ideas of how this happened, and perhaps more importantly, what needs to be done. And in the midst of all this, many U.S. national parks are already crowded. Some are overcrowded, and many are now requiring reservations. I'll speak with author and Wyoming historian Sam Leitner on what's happening in Yellowstone and what that means for many of the other national parks this summer as well. First up, getting your money back. My chat with Bill O'Hearn of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. 
Bill, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate the, the chance to talk to you about this. And I, I'd love to, first of all, this is sort of like a process question. If somebody's sitting there, whether it's a company in Massachusetts or Wyoming for that matter, and they have a situation where the trip got canceled, they never got their money back, uh, their credit card company says they're outside the 60-day window to be able to dispute the charge, what resource can they use? Um, obviously, this is a setup question for you because a lot of people <laughs> called you. That's right. That's right. Um, as the chief of the Consumer Advocacy and Response Division at the Massachusetts AG's office, uh, I do lead the team responsible for helping consumers uh, who have an issue with the business, any kind of business, travel or not. Um, it's really the bread and butter of what we call the people's law firm here. Um, and certainly when COVID hit, uh, we were hit with a ton of complaints. Um, we received over 27,000 complaints in 2020. And uh, in response to those complaints, uh, we helped get more than $15 million in relief for consumers. Um, 12 million of that was on travel-related complaints. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was really one of the biggest issues we worked on in the wake of uh, uh, 2020 when the, the, the pandemic first hit. Uh, you know, $1.4 million from a well-known travel company, uh, EF Educational Tours, millions of dollars from overseas adventure travel, Grand Circle, uh, Trafalgar Tours. Uh, we had a $500,000 settlement with bookit.com for withholding payments on hotels, collecting payments, you know, knowing that trips were going to be canceled and refusing to pay refunds. And we heard from a lot of people with complaints about uh, Vantage Deluxe World Travel. Well, let's talk about them in particular here because the letters that I was getting, the emails I was receiving, people were really out like fifteen dollars $20,000. And, you know, they couldn't get a response from Vantage. Uh, they might have gotten an initial, you know, email communication, but then the communication stopped. And I should say, in the interest of fairness, we have reached out numerous times uh, to Vantage, both by email and by phone, left messages, sent emails, and never got a response, offering them the opportunity to come on the show and talk about the problem and how they were trying to solve it. Uh, I'm assuming you have been able to communicate with them, otherwise you never would have gotten some of that settlement. We have. We have. Um, you know, we've had more than 500 people file complaints with our office uh, about their trips being canceled by Vantage due to the pandemic um, and, and having trouble getting a refund. Uh, but we have gotten more than $936,000 back for consumers who filed those complaints against Vantage. Uh, and we do have a process for escalating complaints to the company. Um, you know, one of the challenges we've had is, is just the speed uh, of providing refunds. You know, in general, um, you know, not, not everyone is getting a refund. It, it, these cases are incredibly fact-specific. Um, but uh, many consumers are able to get refunds, but the, the pace of those refunds uh, has been very slow. And, uh, you know, sometimes taking more than a year for a consumer to get a refund that they were promised by a customer service representative. Um, and we continue to, to have to work with these consumers and the company uh, in order to try to advocate and say, hey, look, uh, you know, these Consumers paid for a service or a product, uh, and and they didn't get that product, and they you know they're due their money back. So let me ask this stupid question: At what point do you go from working with them to threatening prosecution? Well, the you know my division here at the AG's office is a non-litigation division. You know we're we're trying to work to assist consumers and help mediate the problems with the business. Uh, you know the decision to file a lawsuit that's 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 not something that that you know I have responsibility. Sure. Ability for in my office. Um, but, but certainly, I, but I guess you know, there's the question, a number of factors we look at. But I guess, I guess the question, Bill, is what leverage and strength do you have 
if you, you know, if, if I'm a, if I'm running a business and for whatever reason, I basically don't give you back a refund to which you're entitled and you call me on the phone, what leverage do you have to, to convince me that this might be a really good idea to do the right thing and give you, give that person back their money? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly what our, our consumer advocates do on a, on a regular basis with these cases. You know, like, like I mentioned, they're, they're fairly fact-specific. Um, and so, you know, our, um, our mediators, you know, they'll work with the consumer, collect the paperwork, collect the facts, um, and then they'll, they'll pass it on to the company. Uh, and we'll make an argument as to why under Massachusetts law, this consumer should get a refund. And, you know, in the case of, of Vantage, we've had a lot of success getting consumers um, you're getting a commitment from the company to provide a refund or in some cases uh, a credit uh, if the, if the consumer is interested in, in getting a credit um, for a future travel. But um, you know, the, the, the challenges we saw are that uh, those refunds or those credits can take a long time materializing. And a lot of consumers who accepted the credits early, you know, in 2020, uh, you know, they didn't really anticipate, um, I don't think anyone anticipated sort of the, the multiple waves of COVID, um, you know, in the pandemic and how that affected future travel plans. People, you know, re- tried to rebook for 2021, oh, sure. 2022. Ooh, those trips ended up getting canceled as well. And, and I think that has really played into to some of the challenges Vantage and other companies um, oh, sure. have, been, have been facing trying to get, you know, uh, credits to consumers. Well, one word that keeps coming up to me. Uh, suggested by a number of attorneys, by the way, is a six-letter word that I know you've heard before because it's applied in real estate transactions and many other transactions. It's called escrow. And mm-hmm. I was thinking that the travel industry owes itself to be responsible so that, so that if someone's asking me to book a trip six months or a year in advance and they want me to pay for it six months or a year in advance, wouldn't it be a great idea if there was a third-party independent escrow operation that would take that money and hold it and not release it to the travel provider until I show up in that country or get on that cruise or or take that flight? I mean, that would really eliminate a lot of problems that we saw here where companies were either undercapitalized or were paying Peter to tell you know to, to solve a problem with Paul. I think that's a really interesting idea because I think I think you know one of the challenges here for these companies has got to be you know cash flow you know if they're if they're undercapitalized themselves or if they've um, you know uh, overextended themselves you know using current deposits uh, you know to pay for, to pay for past commitments um, you know I think I think they can get themselves into trouble and, and and as we've seen you know across many industries during the pandemic. You know, when businesses fail, consumers, workers, everybody loses. I guess one of my questions, and, and I've done it, by the way, uh, and suggested this to many of our listeners, Bill, and that is you have to check the limits of, of a claim in small claims court. Every state is different, but they tend to average, I think, about $7,500 per claim. Uh, and if, you, if your travel investment is below that and you don't get satisfaction from a travel provider and they happen to have an office in the city or state in, where, in which you live, uh, it might be a good idea to file a small claims court again, uh, claim against them. I mean, I've seen so many cases where the claim was filed, the defendant never showed up, and the judgment was rendered in the, in the, in, you know, for the plaintiff, and they actually got their money. Yeah, I, I mean, we've seen a number of cases where where uh, consumers have gotten fed up waiting for refunds, and they've decided to litigate the case. Um, you know, uh, in Massachusetts, that is a seven thousand dollar limit, um, in for our small claims court. Um, but that that's definitely an avenue to pursue. Um, I think 
uh, one of the challenges with small claims court is getting that judgment enforced. Um, so, you know, I encourage uh, consumers to, to reach out and, and, and research that very well, you know, before filing a lawsuit, um, get some good legal advice. Um, but that but that is definitely an avenue that, that consumers have had some success, uh, particularly if the, the companies are, are just not communicating with you, um, taking that step. There can also be some um, some procedural requirements to be aware of, um, you know, in Massachusetts, uh, oftentimes for consumers uh, to file a, a complaint under our Consumer Protection Act. There's a requirement to first send a demand letter to the company. So do your research, talk to an attorney if you feel like you need it. Um, but yes, you know, sometimes it is necessary to file a lawsuit. Um, but I, I do just want to put in a plug for the services we have at the attorney general's office. Sure. Um, you know, we, we do assist consumers with all kinds of consumer disputes, including travel disputes. Um, so if consumers are having a problem with the company, uh, Massachusetts company, you know, please, please reach out to our office, uh, file a complaint through our website. Um, we do provide free consumer assistance services, uh, in response to the complaints we receive. And we're, we're often able to help, uh, at least get the attention of the business that you're, uh, that you're trying to work with. Well, to help our listeners even more, Bill, why don't you tell them what you need in terms of paperwork to be able to to at least you know review their claim and process it and get, and get it up the ladder? Because it's not just sending a letter to you saying, oh, they owe me money, thanks a lot, goodbye. It's about good record keeping, too. Absolutely. Um, it's so important uh, to keep good records, and especially... Uh, if you've been corresponding with customer service um, and uh, they've given you any kind of information, please try to get it in writing. Um, we we hear so often uh, from consumers that they spoke to a customer service agent, they were promised a refund, um, and then it just never materializes. And then later down the road, you know, the company denies that. Um, and that and that can be a real challenge if there isn't any proof of it. Um, one of the things we do encourage consumers to do is if you get some kind of a commitment on the phone from a customer service agent, ask for it in writing. And if they're not willing to provide it in writing, put it in writing yourself. Send them a letter saying, you know, as we discussed today, you know, I spoke with so-and-so customer service representative um, and um, uh, you said you'd be providing me a full refund within 30 days. If I failed to accurately, you know, capture our conversation, please let me know right away. Um, that, that'll get their attention. And, and at, at the very least, it'll provide you with documentation down the road. You know, if you do need to file a small claims action or uh, pursue some kind of legal recourse, uh, you'll have a contemporaneous writing of your conversation. Which you know, you, very you took the words right out of my mouth. I do that every time I have a conversation with anybody because I need a paper trail to be able to confirm whatever conversation we had so that later on they can say, oh, I never said that or I never made that promise. But you're giving them an opportunity to confirm it by giving them that you know, that confirming email. Exactly, exactly. That, and that's, it's also just helpful for your own notes. I mean, I mean, memories are fallible. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's very difficult, you know, to remember exactly what was said on the phones with these companies, um, you know, years ago, you know, even, even months ago, uh, you know, so, uh, keeping a proper paper trail is really important. Uh, that's one of the first things we do collect when we have a, uh, an open mediation, you know, we'll collect that. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll collect, um, uh, any copy of the contract. Um, if we can get copies of the advertisements and the cancellation policy as of the date the consumer booked, that's really important. Um, we, one of the things we saw that, that a lot of companies tried to do uh, in March of 2020 was to change their cancellation policies on their websites and then point to them uh, when people 
couldn't get the services they wanted to. And they said, oh, hey, look, no, no refunds on our website. Uh, but fortunately, due to some uh, investigative tools, things like Wayback Machine, uh, you know, we could get older versions of their website and say, yeah, that, that policy wasn't the, the same policy that was in place the day the consumer booked their trip, though. And, and, and that's really what matters. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you know, keeping track kidding. of that, uh, keeping the documents. Bill O'Hearn from uh, the Massachusetts State Attorney General's Office. One last question. Of all the money you've been able to collect in the case of Vantage, how much more is there left to get? Well, uh, as I said, I think we've had over 500 complaints. Um, most of those trips are ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 each, and we've only gotten about $900,000 back. So uh, I think there's probably still millions of dollars in refunds that consumers are looking for. But uh, some of those are open cases, so I, I'm not quite sure what the, the total value is. My thanks to Bill. Flight delayed? Canceled? Did you spend the night at the airport? You're not alone. And Gary Leff, author of ViewFromTheWing.com, has some thoughts on what can be done. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. How are you, sir? Hey, Peter. Very good to talk to you, uh, as always. So let's get down to it. Uh, we're seeing a situation on one hand where the airlines tried to sort of preemptively cancel some flights, then they went out there and actually uh, cut routes for the summer, and now American Airlines has gone one step further by basically saying, oh, by the way, while we're at that, we're going to pull out of cities entirely. So, uh, and, and, and the announcement, the first announcement you know, covered four cities, uh, Toledo, Dubuque, Iowa, Ithaca, New York, and Islip, Long Island, one of my favorite airports. Uh, and the, what was particularly interesting to me about the, the, the Toledo announcement was that it followed on the heels of both United and Delta saying they were about to pull out, so by Labor Day, if you're living in Toledo, you're not going to the airport because there's basically nobody flying there or from there. Uh, and we're seeing this happen across the board now. If, you know, if you're living in places like Eureka, California, or um, you know, Fayetteville, Arkansas, or Moline, Illinois, and I'm just starting to mention a couple of them, you got to be a little nervous right now because the planes that these airlines are parking are not 777s. They're the 50-seat regional jets that they now are claiming either they can't find the pilots to fly them, or if they did, they can't afford to fly them in a profitable way. So where are we both going, Gary, and what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's two interesting points you're making, both about pilots and about the economics of these uh, aircraft that serve smaller cities, right? You've got, which, because of the changing passenger mix. The pilot situation is a real problem. During the pandemic, two things happened. You know, the airlines were trying to cut costs, and they got a lot of their senior pilots to take early retirement, and they also weren't uh, doing their usual hiring during the pandemic. So we weren't bringing new pilots into the airlines. So pilot shortage, where do they go? Well, they hire away from the regional airlines because those folks make less money. They can go to the mainline and make more. So the shortage, the crunch really is among pilots who fly those smaller planes. American says they've got 100 regional jets grounded. Uh, largely because of these lack of pilots, you know, but also the most expensive planes on a 
per uh, you know seat mile per passenger basis are these smaller aircraft, and so you know you've got to be able to earn a decent fare in order to make the plane uh, the, the flights profitable. We don't have a full return of business travel. Fares are up for leisure, but you know it, but it varies by market, and so there are real challenges offering services to some of the smaller cities, especially with uh, fewer uh, planes flying, with fewer pilots to service them. It, this is the problem. We need more uh, pilots, and you know it, it's very hard to become one. It takes a long time to train. The federal government requires 1,500 hours of flying uh, for most people to become a commercial airline pilot. Uh, that is you know, six times as much as uh, as before 2008 in the U.S. and uh, six times as much as long as in Europe. Uh, and it's not necessarily the most focused training either. We can probably do better and accelerate pilot training, bring them into the process. But, you know, look, more pilots isn't something that pilots unions love either. So it's difficult to address politically. And there's, uh, and so there's we have a, a real shortage and a problem. Yeah, and there's something else too. It's sort of a vicious circle because – if you're going to find the pilots, assuming you can find them, and you hire them, you're going to pay them more at a time when jet fuel has just increased exponentially. And Bingo. even yeah, well, yeah, and the airlines are doing their own economic analyses of these smaller regional airports saying, well, you know, for those people who live in Toledo, let's not kid ourselves. They can drive for 45 minutes and fly out of Detroit. Um, and if you go down the list of all these airports, you know, even Iceland, Long Island, the, the argument can be made. You got Kennedy and you got LaGuardia. So, as convenient as that Iceland airport may be to people who live in that area, and there's a big population base there, it doesn't necessarily convince the airline bean counters that can justify the airport. Yeah, if they can fill up a 737 somewhere else instead of a 50 seat regional jet, it's a lower cost per passenger. They're going to uh, make more money. They're going to try to shift the flying. Which brings into question something else called the EAS. Essential Air Services Program that's been on the books for a long time that subsidizes airlines to fly routes to maintain essential air service and a lifeline, if you will, to many communities. What's the status with that? Well, look, you know, it was a program developed uh, with airline deregulation in the late 70s. It used to be the airlines had to ask permission to fly a route and ask permission to stop flying a route. And when the government got out of that business, they said, we're worried about some small communities, and so we're going to subsidize flights. Um, it was never it was intended to be a transition program, never intended to you know, already be a 40-plus year program. Um, it makes some sense if you want to um, you know, really keep all the country connected, certainly for rural communities in Alaska. Um, it doesn't necessarily make sense when you've got airports within you know 20 miles of a larger airport that people can drive to uh, and when you've got uh, planes that fly mostly empty and where the subsidies can reach you know several hundred dollars per passenger uh, that are being paid out now the program continues um, and where and an airline can't just drop uh, those markets uh, for uh, for markets that are long standing in the program you know, once they agree to fly it, they have to keep flying it until the uh, Department of Transportation says it's okay to stop, or they find an alternative uh, airline to serve uh, to serve a market uh, out of that airport. So, you know, many of the essential air service cities are in a better position uh, than those without the government subsidies because of the incumbent service that the airlines just can't decide to uh, to drop by law. Now, moving right along, it's not just a pilot shortage; if a it's a staff shortage. I think during the pandemic, correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, 
But one example was Delta Airlines. They cut their employee numbers by about 38,000. Delta dropped their staff numbers by 31%. Yeah. And then, you know, there takes time to rehire. And the people they're rehiring take time to train. And, you know, they lost a lot of airline experience. So Delta in particular was always uh, head and shoulders above their major competitors in terms of operational reliability. They had a great reputation for you know, getting their planes out generally on time, but certainly not canceling flights. They go hundreds of days without a canceled mainline flight. And that's really changed. And it seems to be that they lost a lot of expertise as they lost a lot of employees during the pandemic. And of course, the federal government subsidies were intended to make sure that people stayed with airlines, but the airlines took the money and used it to pay employees to retire early or leave. And so they lack the employees. And of course, you take American Airlines that, you know, if you try to get through to an airline on the phone, it takes hours. They don't have enough call center staff. And the, with more leisure travelers, the calls take longer. There's more calls per, per trip. Um, and American even took reservation staff uh, uh, and they moved them to the airports because there weren't enough people at the airports. You know, lines are long at the airports because it takes, you know, so it takes longer to check in, it takes longer to check your bags. TSA has been short-staffed in many cases as well, longer security lines. Uh, we've got long lines then to get into uh, clubs because people show up earlier because of all this variability. Uh, and now you've got people descending on the uh, airport lounges and lines to get in. I got to jump in on that one because I, it may have been in, in, in your column where an executive from Delta Airlines was angry about all the people showing up at their lounges, by the way, who were members, saying, oh, by the way, we're not WeWork. But guess what? You are WeWork. Because if I have to wait for my plane because it's delayed or canceled, that's the purpose of the lounge that was started back in the 50s. I mean, the, the point is, I really don't go to the airport to go to the airport. I go to the airport to go through it. And so if I'm a member of the lounge, it's because I'm anticipating I'm going to be spending uh, a lot of unanticipated time, you know, more than I thought at the airport. So you can't blame me for being a member and using the club. I did highlight that quote, but uh, it was uh, Don Gilbertson at the uh, Wall Street Journal who got this Delta executive to explain their decision to limit access to a club to three hours before the uh, first departure on an itinerary. And he says, yeah, look, we're not a WeWork. And, you know, frankly, yeah, I disagree. It's supposed to be a membership club. Uh, you know, there was a time when, you know, pre-9-11, you go to security without a ticket, you could use the club. Right. And there's still clubs that are pre-security that, that you can use. And, you know, you're a member, you go into a club that you bought and purchased a membership for. Um, in recent years, airlines have restricted it to say, look, you can only come in when you're flying us, um, which is, you know, one restriction. Sometimes they say, look, you can only fly it on departure, come in on departure, not arrival. Um, and there is a challenge with, Lots of people who want to get into the clubs. The clubs are crowded. They're not really an oasis away from the airport anymore uh, when, you know, when they're just as crowded as the terminal. And that's a problem. You know, it's, it's the old Yogi Berra. They're you know, so busy no one goes there anymore uh, because the value isn't there. I find the biggest value in airport lounges, uh, especially if I can't spend time at work is just getting help with uh, flight itineraries when things go bad because you usually get you know better, more helpful agents in a shorter line. But you know, if, if an airport lounge provides you know, food 
uh, passengers are going to show up early uh, and eat to their heart's content at the buffet. In fact, airlines have found that even when you know that air, that passengers are going to show up early, uh, they're going to show up earlier than that and stay longer than that. And more passengers are going to come. And, you know, there's only but so much space in airports, even though uh, airports have discovered that they can put a lounge just about anywhere, um, a space that uh, people aren't able to, that they're not able to use for retail or restaurants because passengers are going to walk to the lounges. And, you know, I, I do think that they're, that they're worth it for help during scheduling problems. But gosh, when there's a line to get into a lounge, I view that lounge as not worth it, certainly not waiting in line, because by the time you get to the front, it's not like you're going to have a peaceful oasis. There's a line because it's so packed and busy. Uh, and that's just like the rest of the airport experience. Even those who are buying out of uh, the you know, chaos aren't really getting away from that much chaos. My thanks to Gary. Now, as America hits the road this summer, many national parks are challenged, and it's getting tougher to get in. Author and historian Sam Leitner reports from Wyoming, where Yellowstone is particularly challenged. So give me a, a sit rep, if you can, Sam, of what's going on this summer in the national parks. As you said, there things are crazy. A whole bunch of parks now are actually, if they're not just considering it, they're actually taking reservations. You can't just show up and drive in. I, I think Arch has switched over this year to a reservation system. Zion's been doing it for a little while, I believe. But uh, Grand Teton's not doing that, and Yellowstone is currently not doing that. But it could happen at any It moment. could happen at any time. And last summer, you know, they, they had people just camping along the roads. because Who couldn't were, even get in. They, yeah, they, they couldn't get in. They couldn't, they couldn't find a place to camp in the campgrounds they didn't know they had to have reservations and it's a long ways out of yellowstone it's a big park it's pull over and go to sleep i mean it was it was not uh i believe they were 20 percent over what they were at their next closest number to that so and it looks like that's going to repeat itself this year yeah does seem so gas prices are up but they're not as up as uh as airline tickets are all right, so let's go a little bit deeper because I've always told people, and you're, you're, you're the Wyoming expert, if you can't get into a national park, let's take a look at Yosemite for a second. If you can't get into Yosemite, California has about 10 state parks within 40 miles of there, which offer camping and great outdoors and social distancing. At least in the past, that was an alternative, but now even the state parks, parks are getting crowded. Yeah, yeah. They are, but not as much because it, it, at least not in Wyoming, they're not getting as crazy. And frankly, there are places in Wyoming that aren't even state parks that if they were, well, I'm being a little snooty here about Wyoming, but if they were in a bunch of other states, uh, they'd, they wouldn't even, uh, they, they'd, they'd be national parks, you know. Um, they're, you know, multiple well, that's okay big, to boast. You okay, can boast. You know, uh, there's, no, there's no national park in, uh, uh, in the Bighorn Range. Uh, and the Bighorn Range is an amazing, huge mountain range with a lot of history and you know beautiful peaks. Um, uh, my wife and I live in Lander, Wyoming. By the way, population is mm, about seven thousand. Small. Yeah, yeah. The whole state's only a little over five hundred thousand, uh, and we're the tenth largest state. So we, other than Alaska, we have the lowest uh, per mile person. Um, so. But we've got, you know, we've got beautiful places right outside our town. Just five miles out of town is Sinks Canyon State Park. And, you know, it's a it's a deep canyon into the Wind River Range. Uh, there's another uh, place that's not even a state park um, that's a 2,500-foot deep canyon. 
called Wind River Canyon, and it's it's an amazing site. There's a lot to see in Wyoming that isn't in those parks. Right, but now you have to have the equipment to do it. You can't just show up in the sedan. You have to, you know, it's, yeah. it's camper time or it's RV time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, Do you need to have a permit? Depends. The, uh, you know, in the Western United States, a huge amount of the land is owned by what's known as the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM, right? The BLM. And on BLM land and in a lot of Forest Service land, you don't need a permit to camp overnight. You can just pull over and camp. And Wyoming is just under 50% federally owned. So most of that is BLM and Forest Service. So you can just pull over on the side of the road, find a level spot, and go to sleep. Bottom line, though, is you got to know where to look. You got to know where to look. Um, you got to you you got to know that that you're not pulling into somebody's ranch. Uh, you know, <laughs> that you wanna, would be awkward. That would be awkward. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's not hard to find. Sam, in the last couple of days, we've seen other developments happening in Yellowstone that has nothing to do with crowds. It has to do with weather. Yeah, we had a normal snowpack in Wyoming this year, but Wyoming's just been hit with. You know, one of those they called it a river, an air river, or something like that. Last year, it came in off the off the Pacific and and slammed California. Well, that happened in Yellowstone, and a number of roads have been washed out to a point that they may not be able to open up the northern part of the park. I think you would, you know, they've they've got the whole park closed, uh, or they had it closed for just a couple of days. I think they're going to open up the southern part of the park, but the northern part of the park, like entering from Montana. You're probably not going to be able to do that this summer. So that's off the table. It's off the table currently and probably will be off the table all summer. Of course, that'll then put pressure on other national parks. Yep. But then again, how many national parks are there? Over 384 national parks and monuments out there. And I'm probably under that number right now. And when you think about that, almost all of them this summer are going to be pretty full. Yeah. And in Wyoming, you've got Grand Teton just south of Yellowstone. So... Obviously, if you were going to Yellowstone and you had most of your trip booked going in that direction, you can still go to Grand Teton. and then If the, you can get in. If you can get in. The other end of the state, there's Devil's Tower National Monument, the first national monument. That one, even if you can't get in, you're right underneath it when you're there. You so get to see it. You, you, you get, get to, to see, see it. it. You get to be there. So, you know, there's still stuff to see. Uh, but, right, let me yeah. ask you another question, though. For everybody listening to the show who's, who's thinking of doing this, and have, since you've done this so often, what's the one thing people forget to pack when they're going to a national park? What's the one thing people should absolutely take with them or take more with them than they think? A national park as high in altitude as Yellowstone or Grand Teton, an actual rain jacket. Something that isn't just a windbreaker, but actually keeps you dry. Because at altitude, the temperature drops pretty quick when a storm comes in. So you not only get wet, but then the wind blows and the temperature drops and you get downright cold. And at higher altitudes, it can snow in Wyoming any month of the year. So you, you need a good rain jacket to keep you dry. And then speaking of water, you got to hydrate. That's the other side of it. You dehydrate a lot faster at altitude because the air is so dry. So you just breathe out your water. All right. So pack plenty of water and a real raincoat. Yeah. Any other kind of supplies? If you're going to go hiking in the backcountry in Yellowstone, you should stop at a local shop, outdoor equipment shop, and buy bear spray. Um, <laughs> this sounds I was all, waiting for that. It, it, but it's the truth. Our, the grizzly you remember the old line? I don't have to outrun the bear. Yeah. I just have to outrun you. It's true. 
unless there's two bears and then you know but it, it, it's tr- our our grizzly population uh, there's a discussion in Wyoming over whether they should even be removed from the endangered species list uh, because it's very healthy now and um, you 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 just should be prepared for it and a gun is not what's going to help you bear spray will help you and it's not bear spray that you spray on yourself and it it makes the bears not want to bite you it's it's basically mace in a can and the bears breathe it in when they're coming towards you and then they just go oh my gosh i don't want anything near that and by the way speaking of bears and i've seen this happen so many times in yosemite roll your windows up yes because they are they they know where the food is they know exactly how to get it and they'll rip apart your car they'll pull the door off your car yeah uh, they, they, the Yosemite bears are famous for, they, they recognize, you know, igloo coolers and all that kind of stuff. But uh, um, even we're talking about bears and bears, it sounds all scary. Oh, I'm not going out there. You know, more people are attacked by both moose and, and oh, bison okay. I have than tell, bears. I have, I have to tell my moose story. I was in Yellowstone on a snowmobile in the middle of winter, going from hut to hut to hut. And I was doing 30 miles an hour. And I'm feeling no pain, having a great time. And way in the distance, I see a moose. And I'm thinking, oh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, how cute. And he sees me, and I can see the steam coming out of his nostrils, and he starts to come towards me. I figure, moose, how fast can he go? <laughs> oh, my God. I am, tr- And now I'm in a death race with a moose who's coming at me at a 45-degree angle. And my only salvation was to, to take the snowmobile into a snowbank. And hope he and I could actually hear him above me, you know, like that. yeah, making a little and snarl. Finally, noise. he got bored and left. But oh my God, that was tough. Yeah, yeah. They're, uh, Do not try to outrun the moose. And it's funny. Sometimes the moose are like they're they're completely benign and and happy to see you, and they just they, they actually don't even care that anybody's around. And other times, all of a sudden, they'll just blow a gasket and and get grumpy. But the bison, you should never get. They're not big hairy cows. <laughs> they are very, very aggressive animals. We've already had a person badly injured this year because th- this is crazy, Peter, but there's a thing called the bison selfie that you're supposed to post in social media. That is you with a bison. Not a good idea. It's not a good idea. Do not do the bison selfie. It's an unhealthy practice. My thanks to Sam, to Gary Leff, and to Bill O'Hearn. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and you know it's only going to be more coming, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. 
Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.